It is huge. I think there was a Gallup poll yesterday or this week that 14% of American adults are already consuming CBD. And that's the bulk of that is in tincture formats, which to my mind is like crawling over broken glass to consume CBD. This is C2C, where we cover innovation in the food and CBG business from conception to consumption. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm here today with the CEO of Caliper Foods, Justin Singer. Caliper Foods is a CBD solutions company for both consumers and manufacturers. Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. Justin, why don't we start with your background? You've got an interesting background. You've got a law degree from an Ivy League university. You've got an MBA from an Ivy League university. You're in the CBD industry. Why why the heck did you do that? Why didn't you go to someplace like Wall Street and just make a zillion dollars? I just really enjoy disappointing my grandmother. Um, <laughs> no, I did the I did the JD MBA Columbia um, and then had the great foresight to graduate in 2009 with two advanced degrees and no work experience. Um, fortunately, I ended up at a venture firm called IA Ventures in New York City, and we were focused on seed stage investments in big data companies. And that really fit well with me. I had been somebody who sort of in grad school been pushed towards consulting for the like, you're too much of a generalist, so you get better do something you don't have to focus. Um, unfortunately, nobody ever stepped forward and said, you should never be in client services, um, which would have been really good advice to keep me out of consulting in the first place. <laughs> um, but I, I really found a niche in investing. I really loved the idea of exploring new markets. I, I really loved just the thought process of new businesses. I had always been sort of a, a value investor growth, like a Philip Fisher type growth investor at heart in a venture world. and. It was a fascinating opportunity, especially in that era, to see a lot of new markets and new demand evolving. And I started developing theories at that time, that my personal theories of what made for a good startup business. And one of them was that you needed this match between demand and regulatory unlocking. So when I looked at like the, the bond markets, the junk bond markets from the 80s or from right up to the housing crisis, like those turned out poorly, but like they were unlocked by regulation and this mix of demand. So come 2013, 2014, I had left the venture firm. I had been working with one of our portfolio companies that had been teaching entrepreneurship and innovation theory at Columbia Engineering School. And I was look, exploring new markets to get into. And two, a couple things happened. One, Colorado was on the verge of becoming the first rec legal state for marijuana. Mm-hmm. And that was something where you clearly had a market of demand, thousands of years of demand, not to mention like the post-prohibition era. Um, and you had obviously this regulatory unlocking that was going on. So there were new opportunities. And when we looked at the market, we just saw that people weren't thinking through. It didn't look like a future state market. It really looked like a black market given the color of law. So you had this race to potency with edibles. People were trying to shove as much THC as possible into every single brownie serving. Um, we, start, we talked about that at the time as breaking the one serving, one dose paradigm. Like you think about the can of Diet Coke that we have in front of us. And it's like, that is a serving of caffeine. It is also a serving of Diet Coke. Those two things go together. Um, It'd be very strange if you put a hundred Diet Cokes worth of servings into one can. Mm. You you would lose the ability to understand what you were getting into. Um, Also, everything was being done in the sin food formats. So everything was like a high fat content cookie or a brownie. And there were good, interesting reasons for that that we discovered as we explored it. But at the time... The key point was that like this was not something that could fit into people's daily lives. It was not something that people were going to integrate and feel good about consuming every day. And while we were starting to have that aha, 
another thing happened, which is my grandmother asked me for a pot brownie. And <laughs> she was 92 at that point, uh, diabetic. She And she wasn't interested in getting stoned. She just wanted to feel better. And to do that, she, like 100 milligrams wasn't going to make her feel better. It was going to make her feel tremendously worse. And she was terrified of this anyways. This is a woman who had never consumed drugs in her life, identified very much as a non-drug user. So we started thinking like, how could we uh, position THC, especially in microdoses, as a functional ingredient for her so she could just feel better? And in thinking through that, we started looking at teas. We felt that that was just a great value proposition for her. It was something that she felt comfortable consuming already. It was something that was safe, that had the similar brand characteristics to cannabis in the first place. That it was natural, it was ritualistic. It was organic, but it didn't require to self-identify as the drug user, and it was healthy in every day. Um, and in pursuing that tea, which we initially were hoping to get in a two and a half milligram dose, which was trying to mimic the idea of, we would say, if you can imagine the feeling you get after taking three deep breaths and then have that last for three hours, that's what we wanted to get out of her, this, um, and what she wanted to get out of it, more importantly. Um, but in pursuing that, we discovered there's a good reason why everything was all butter-based. It's because THC is a lipid. It is fat-soluble, not water-soluble. So if you dissolve it in butter, just like everybody is doing in college dorm rooms across the country for the last <coughs> 50 years, like you can create your own pot brownie. It doesn't require a large food infrastructure. But if you're going to get it into a healthy format, you really have to start thinking about how do I get this into a water-soluble uh, matrix? so that it can go into water-based foods that have much lower caloric content. And that piece that started off as just a small component of what we were trying to solve to get to the tea turned out to be the, the biggest insight that we found in the company. Um, we were fortunate at that time to meet somebody who first started as an advisor and ended up as our head of R&D, who had spent 30 years at Mars, M&M Mars, the principal food scientist in the new product development group that's there, working on the commercialization of novel ingredients. Uh, flavonoids was his last big project. And he came on board to help us really focus on that water solubility piece and how we can tune that, take that, convert cannabinoids into food-ready ingredients that work on existing food manufacturing infrastructure. And we we're fortunate to get that piece perfected to the point where we were able to release it as a standalone product called Ripple, um, which we did in like mid-2016, I want to say, late 2016, into the Colorado market. Ripple has three SKUs that are now the top three beverages in Colorado. It was a great success, and we're super happy and proud of it. Um, but what it led to was even more interesting, which was about a year later, we got a call from somebody who said, I've been using your high CBD SKU of Ripple to prototype an RTD beverage for CBD only. And I think CBD is going to be the next big thing. Would you sell this to us in bulk so I could use it as an ingredient? And we were like, we, we would love to. Unfortunately, Colorado laws don't allow us to. As a THC manufacturer, we were only allowed to sell THC products. But we felt that the opportunity was so great that it made sense to spin up a new business entity, spin up a new factory, build it out, and a whole new set of manufacturing infrastructure to provide CBD specifically. And in the time between those two things, we really became what we think of as a food company that specializes in cannabinoids rather than a cannabis company that's discovered food. And we've taken all the learnings that we've taken on the THC side, and now we're bringing them to the CBD side, where we've got uh, a whole suite of solutions for food and beverage manufacturers who want standardized soluble CBD that can be infused on their existing manufacturing infrastructure. And then we've also are launching a consumer line 
that's focused on the same technology as the Ripple powder packets, um, but CBD only. Okay, so to, so to back up for our listeners, you and I are both based here in Colorado, which was obviously a pioneer on the marijuana THC side. Your business kind of got launched into that, but over time you moved to the CBD derived from hemp side of the business, which is a smoking hot area now for a lot of food and beverage companies as an ingredient. Very much so, yes. And we, we were able to do that because we just viewed cannabinoids as a new category of functional ingredients. So the technology that we had worked on with THC was directly applicable to CBD. Mm-hmm. And it was we had even been working with CBD in the context of THC. But now, obviously, since the 2018 Farm Bill, uh, there is the color of law with CBD. Even if we're still working out the details on the demand side, at least the supply side has really opened up. So we're just trying to build infrastructure. We try and remind people all the time this is a nascent industry that is lacking the infrastructure that they're used to in food. And it's really important to pay attention to how it's being built and to get it built up carefully and co- in a way that can scale as people start getting onto it because it is huge. I mean, I think there was a Gallup poll yesterday or this week that 14% of American adults are already consuming CBD. And that's the bulk of that is in tincture formats, which to my mind is like crawling over broken glass to consume CBD. So a lot of our listeners, Justin, are going to be in the food industry, the CPG industry, and they're going to be interested in the question, should I be adding CBD as an ingredient for my kombucha, my snack bars, my granola, my ice cream, which Ben and Jerry's has talked about and so on and so forth. So can you take a minute and tell them about Caliber Foods elevator pitch and what makes Caliber Food different from other solutions providers for CBD? Sure. So the, the B2B side of our business is really CP, CBD solutions for CPG experts. There's, I, I think this industry right now is rife with people who are just trying to throw CBD in everything like it's pixie dust. We fundamentally believe that CBD is a raw material. It has to be further refined. It has to be put into soluble formats. It has to be controlled for flavor. And it has to be standardized, tested, and shelf stability substantiated. The whole suite of tests to make sure that this is as safe as it can possibly be. All the things that the food industry is great with, but they sort of forget themselves when it comes to CBD. So you ask, like, should they be putting it into things? I don't know. Um, I think CBD is sort of like caffeine in the sense that it doesn't work with everything. It would be weird to have caffeine in your yogurt, but, like, it's not weird to have it in the Diet Coke. Now, is there a fundamental reason? I don't know, but, like, there is... There are integrations and intelligent matches that have to be considered between brand, product, and effect of what you're offering. And then you've also got to keep in mind things like flavor profiles. So, yeah, so let's, yeah, you bring up a good topic. So let's geek out on some technical issues here for a minute because we've got listeners who, let's say they are seriously considering adding CBD as an ingredient to their food and beverage product. Tell us, tell us some of the technical issues they ought to be on top of. You mentioned flavor profile. I know there's, there can be a bitter taste with a lot of CBD type products. What, what have you learned at Caliper Foods? CBD is extremely bitter. I mean, our food scientists, and we have brought in food scientists from Mars, from Ingredient, from Church and Dwight. Like these are real food scientists with lots of experience and background. And it is the most bitter compound they've ever worked with. And Mm. that includes caffeine, which is the standard for bitterness. Um, And then, you can uh, you can multiply that problem when you start 
focusing on particle size. So you'll see a lot of claims out in the market about like we nano emulsify our CBD and that's why it's bioavailable, bioavailable and that's why it works in a liquid concentrate. And people come to us and ask, do you nano emulsify? And we're like, yeah, we mix things. Um, that's step one. But like you have to be very careful how you mix it because the smaller the particle size, the greater the surface area, the greater the bitterness. And like bitterness is a really complex uh, idea. When it comes, like there is genetic component to it. There's a temporal component. Is it going to be early on your tongue? Is it going to be early in the flavor? Is it going to be lasting? Is it going to build? Um, and then you're dealing with the fact that a lot of the biggest, best emulsifiers for this have their own bitterness properties and problems that you have to deal with. So you can attack it in a few ways. You can attack it through particle size control and just process control. That's always the preferred method because it has the fewest variables. You can also attack it through blocking and masking. Um, that has its own issues, pros and cons. Um, you can also, and when you mask it, you can do it with like a sweetness or you can do it with a sugar. You see a lot of people just dumping sugar. Now, like as an ingredient, you have a lot of options. And if you're a food company that's really sophisticated, you've got your own flavor formulators, you really understand that, maybe you just want the basics. You want something that's the, the vanilla compound that has nothing more than the, the process ready, ver the best process of CBD. But maybe you want some help with some extra sugar. You just have to be, you have to think about your end use application and what's the right product for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of our listeners are food scientists, food technologists, research chefs, so they're going to understand uh, these issues associated with chemistry, molecules, flavor profiles, all that kind of stuff. So what's, what's Caliper's spiel on this? Have you guys developed proprietary technology? Have you just spent countless hours figuring this out on how to get rid of the bitterness? What's, what do you tell people? You know, it's a multivariate problem that has no easy solution. I think like the general rule in this industry is anybody who is selling you certainty, like selling you the idea that they have it solved is lying. Um, it is every time it's like whack-a-mole. If you want to reduce your particle size, so you increase your shelf stability, you're increasing your bitterness profile. If you reduce, if you want to put in bitter maskers, you're creating problems with the other flavor sets that you're working with. So what we have done, I think is we just pay attention to it as a happy medium. Like because we have this consumer goods background and we, know that everything we produce is an ingredient like we have supplied to ourselves to use as a finished good and we have used it as a finished good so we have a very good sense of how to actually integrate this and what the drawbacks and benefits are of different tweaks that you can make but at the end of the day it's it's providing a suite of the correct products that match the application so like if somebody came to us and said hey i've got a juice that i want to infuse with cbd we would tell them okay we've got a couple different rtds uh, liquid concentrates designed for RT, and here's one that's got a little bit of an underlying sweetness profile that's labelable as natural flavors that is a good base product for you to work with because you've got this underlying sweetness in your product already. So this little masker won't even be noticed by your end user, but it will do a really great job masking that bitter profile. Now, if you come with like a mineral water or something that doesn't have that underlying sweetness profile, we'll, we'll have to set you up with a different product that maybe doesn't have doesn't fully mask the bitterness, but tries to like massage it into more of a minerally taste. Um, there, there are a lot of different options for how you can handle it. And I don't think there's one easy solution for it. So let's talk about a couple of different technical aspects. We've covered flavor. Uh, what, what do product development people in food and CBG, what do they need to be aware of in terms of fat soluble versus water soluble? I mean, I think 
they're aware of a lot of it. Like this is one thing that's sort of pervasive in the industry is I think people see people from food see CBD and they get so scared of missing out. I think less so on the science side, maybe a bit more on the business side that they forget that they know a lot and that this is food. And if when somebody comes to you with a black box, <coughs> that's a big red flag. Mm-hmm. Like, People can talk about patents all they want, but it's food. Like there are things you can do, but at the end of the day, it's trade secrets and it's a lot of additional work. So, um, as far as the the original question, which I'm blanking on, I'm sorry. Um, oh, oh, it's soluble. Soluble. So, that I think like they know a lot about fat soluble versus water soluble. Mm-hmm. Like, we have been emulsifying lipids for the longest time. Like we, coffee is is take, trying to take something that's oil and putting it into a water matrix. It's obviously not super stable, but like that we have found ways, especially with RTD, to make it super stable. Um, so it's just a consideration of like, what is your end application? And like, you gotta pay attention. You gotta remember how little we actually know about things, especially on when it comes to shelf stability. So I think a lot of people have ignored this and they've been okay doing that because the products, the velocity is so high on so many of these products that things don't sit out on shelf. But like, how long is that gonna last? Especially when a mm-hmm. lot of people get into it. like. You got to worry about this beverages stuff. and things like that. Yeah, like, are you going to get separation? Are like phase separation? Are you going to get an oily mouth feel? Um, or can, is it something somebody can consume the entire uh, twenty ounces or twelve ounces, whatever the serving is, at once? Or are they going to have to sip it for fear of getting that super bitter profile? Um, it's there's just all of the classic questions that I think a food scientist, when they're when they're onboarding any new ingredient, would ask. There's no reason not to ask and expect those from CBD manufacturers. Now, like, you're not going to get them from almost every CBD manufacturer. You're going to get a lot of hand waving. You're going to get a lot of buzzwords, um, and you're going to get a lot of trust me um, or like this is too new. You don't have to believe that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you, and and you kind of bring up the Wild West topic here, right? We know this is a, a nascent industry. It's exploding. It, it has some gray areas of regulation. The farm bill did not answer all the questions. So what's your take on the industry growing up and professionalizing? Where are we? Is it, is it getting weeded out? Not yet. Um, I mean, FDA has to regulate, like right down to how things are labeled. They have to regulate what is, what is CBD. Um, so this... There's an ongoing discussion of like full spectrum versus broad spectrum versus isolate. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's d- dig into that, if you would, please, because I think a lot of our uh, listeners maybe have heard those terms, but they really don't understand what it means in terms of label claims and benefits and things like that. Yeah, so I personally think full spectrum is bull- <laughs> Um It's just, it's, full spectrum is a word that is sort of like fruit salad. Um, like, what is a fruit salad? That's not a standard of identity. That's something that like a restaurant puts on their menu and every week it's a different composition of what actually goes in there. That's full spectrum. Now like CBD in that analogy, and like this metaphor only stretches so far, so just don't take it too literally. Um, CBD is like a blueberry. Like That is a component in that salad. Um, and like one blueberry is to a first approximation the same as any other blueberry. Like blueberry is a blueberry, that's a standard of identity. Um, fruit salad, every fruit salad is different. Anyone who's had a, a fruit salad full of cantaloupe knows that a, that one versus strawberries is totally different things. And that's a real risk. So like 
The concept of full spectrum is that you're getting a product that mirrors the whole plant's composition. And like, let's be clear, like hemp plants are fascinating plants and like CBD is not the only cannabinoid by a long shot. Over a hundred, right? Over a hundred. So, so wouldn't I, wouldn't I want that? Wouldn't I want full spectrum? Wouldn't I say, don't take out the other 99? You might. That's, so here's the thing. You absolutely might. The problem is that what those other 99 are needs to be consistent from batch to batch for you as a manufacturer to hold on to your brand promise. So there are really interesting studies done where like you take full spectrum from the same genetics, the same field, and the underlying cannabinoids change out over time. And that can happen through the cultivation, it can happen through the extraction, it can happen through the refinement. But at the end of the day, you've got this one bioactive that's standardized, the CBD content, and then you've got 90 other bioactives that are a rotating cast of characters that are completely uncontrolled. And in one of those casts, it works great for you. In another cast, it doesn't work at all. So I, people have laid claim to the idea that full spectrum is more legal than CBD isolates because CBD isolate is what the FDA gave new drug status to for Epidiolex. It's just not true. I mean, you think about it too, like grapes when it comes to wine, how much do people pay for like that one row of grapes on the special vineyard? Because that is the super special one that really gets everything. It's not no different. Like they're a plant, so like they express differently based on soil conditions, based on uh, ambient conditions, all of that. So you will get a different compound every time. It is, it is unfixable almost. Now, like what you can do, in a lot of people have invested in, are distillation processes, usually using chromatography that tries to remove all the THC content, which, in my opinion, by the way, is the largest risk facing food manufacturers is THC encroachment. The 0.3%? Yeah. I mean, like, THC and CBD, when they're in plants, they derive from the same other cannabinoids, CBG. So, like, as you raise the CBD content, you're also raising the THC content. And, like, if you're a cult of, if you're a farmer, you want to maximize your CBD content because that's what you're getting paid for. Mm-hmm. Well, you also want to not let the THC content get above 0.3, else you got to burn your field, technically. Not that everyone does, but technically that's what you're supposed to do. Um, so that THC content. And then when you go and extract it, you're going to concentrate that up. So it's actually above 0.3% is an immediate. So then you've got to take that and get it down. And how do you get it down to get the THC content out? Well, there's two ways you could do it. One, this is generally what's thought of as full spectrum is you will dilute it with an MCT oil by a factor of 10 to get that THC content down below 0.3%. But then you've got a problem. Your CBD content is only like 2% at that point. And that's not really a usable amount. Like that's now you've got to add a whole lot of this extra product to get to that CBD target level that you want to get to. And that's a lot of adulterant to somebody's formula that they like put together and really care about. Um, and there's a lot of flavor encroachment that can happen with there. So what people will do is they will fortify with ice, CBD isolate. Well, now what's the point of not using CBD isolate? You are using it. You're just getting a C of A and a and a lab certification that's frankly a lie. And it's a wink and a nod and like, great, but that's not a sustainable way to run an industry. Um, The other thing you could do is you could run it through chromatography, which lots of people are making very bold claims about the throughput of those processes, the fact that they can strip away all THC, the fact that it will be the most natural reflection of what the plant was. I, I think all three of those are somewhat dubious. Um, the throughput is not nearly what people advertise. They tend to advertise the theoretical throughput at full capacity rather than the practical throughput at like one shift a day. Um, and it's much lower than everybody wants. The uh, fact that it will be THC free 
yeah, as you push on throughput, that's going to be the first thing, first gate that's going to let some things through. You're going to run quality control risks. And like, we have seen that quite often. We do a lot of testing of products on the market and like almost all full spectrum products that are labeled as full spectrum. Those are the ones that have THC encroachment in significant amounts sometimes. So we've talked about things like label claims, uh, efficacy, potency, purity, stuff like that. Let's talk about the downside risk areas. So, uh, CBD, hemp derived CBD, pesticide residue, uh, heavy metals, uh, toxins, things like that. What are the risks for a food company looking to put this in as an ingredient? They're not nothing. I mean, hemp is a bioaccumulator, I think is the exact term. Like mm -hmm. it, it absorbs a, whatever is in the soil. It the cleans roots. up the soil. Yeah. yeah. Um, so heavy metals are especially concerned. Now, like the problem is you've got to get into the details. So you'll see a lot of companies that say, we do heavy metal analysis on all of our products and it's safe. And nobody asks the next question, which is like, which heavy metals, which meth which analytical methods, and what's your level of detection at what thresholds? Yeah, in-house or third-party lab, and are yeah. they qualified? Like, are you doing titanium? Are you doing cadmium? Like, what are you doing? Are you just doing the big, th like the big three or four? Um, like, what are you actually doing there? Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of like headlines and a lot less of digging into the nuance of it. And like, you really should be digging into the nuance of it. Um, I think. Heavy metals are certainly a risk because of the nature of hemp. Um, I think if you, but that's something that can be solved pretty much at the extraction level. So I think like you get a good clean C of A from a reputable lab that does heavy metals according to methods and analyses that you agree with, like you can feel pretty safe about that. Um, pesticides, same thing. I think most pesticides are gonna burn off anyways in the extraction process or boil off and you can, but anything that's not obviously you wanna, what you're really caring about is not so much the pesticides there, it's the residual solvents from the process. Mm -hmm. um, so you want to make sure that they actually ran that process correctly. And is, isn't, isn't hemp a particularly rugged plant that doesn't require a lot of pesticides anyway? You know, it's not my area of expertise, so I, I can't say for sure whether it does or doesn't. I think it obviously depends on the growing conditions and where it's being grown, how mm -hmm. it's being grown, what you're trying to promote in it. There's a lot of different ways to grow hemp. Um, but generally speaking, I, yeah, I mean, the flower, you're getting CBD in the context of CBD specifically, those are coming from female plants from the flowering component of it. And my understanding, right or wrong, is that that is more attractive to insects. So like you do have to worry about uh, the pesticides because you have more terpene production there. Um, although I've heard both sides of that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so definitely some downside risk for people, some issues to be aware. And I, and I assume this is where calipers, solutions come into play in your consultative capabilities? Yeah, I mean, we think that our our stock and trade is consistency. Like, I, I'm not against, you had mentioned, like, some people say, like, don't I want all of those extra cannabinoids in there? Like, if somebody wants to come out and verify that XCBD plus YCBN plus ZCBC together is preferable to just CBD isolate, I am happy to believe that. Like, there is a totally reasonable generalized truth to the idea that you can create synergies from multiple independent compounds that are more efficacious than a single compound. But like, how are you going to guarantee that it's same ratio every time? Like we're talking about every time you say full spectrum, you're talking about something different from me when I say full spectrum. So we've looked at all of that. We looked at everything I've ever saying. We've said the key thing here is consistency. Like 
manufacturers need consistency, not just in terms of their cannabinoid content. They need to, in terms of the particle size that they're working with. They need to know that this is going to integrate into whether it's their beverage or their food, that it's going to flow, that it's going to actually be manufacturable, um, that it's something that you can scale up and not worry about your line breaking down right in the middle because somebody didn't do quality control and they've got a clump in your powder pack. Yeah, the last lot I sent you tasted pretty good, but this one's bitter. Right. And like, frankly, that's something that we have dealt with in the past. Like we have come out with bitter lots and it's all, and like that is just the nature of an early stage company. Like you're learning as you're doing things and like as you're layering in new equipment, you're figuring out how to use it best um, and pulling things back and tweaking other things. But like before you can adapt things, you have to really measure them and characterize them. So like, we get a report that something is bitter, then our next step is great. We have really good information on exactly what process we subjected that to. We know what the parameters were. We can go back, can rerun the entire production run, see if it actually comes out the same way, and then we can start tweaking things one at a time in independent variables to figure out how to solve that problem. Mm-hmm. But like, if there's one thing I've learned in manufacturing, it's that like it is a sea of uncontrolled variables. And all you are doing is trying to pick out the ones that you need to control and reduce variance wherever you possibly can. Mm. And like that's in the best case scenario. And CBD is the supply chain of CBD is most certainly not the best case. So, so let me, let me change gears on you here, Justin, take out your crystal ball, if you will, and talk to us about fads versus trends. And, you know, how, how is this all going to play out over the next three, four, five years for the food and beverage industry? Yeah, so when I look at CBD, I see a trend and a fad. And I think the fad of CBD is angsty millennials on the coasts. So, like, the, the idea that, like, this is going to reduce your anxiety and just give you the overall wellness thing. Like, I, it probably does, and frankly. I don't think we have enough research to fully say that with super confidence, but, like, we have a lot of indications, and I think it probably is true. But that's still not the trend. The trend is really making aging suck less. Like the the center of gravity for CBD three to five years from now is going to be Boca. Like it is going to be middle America. It is going to be people who have spent their lives on their feet, who have spent their lives working, who have generalized aches and pains. I think the strongest use case in terms of scientific data for CBD's efficacy is built around it being a generalized Mm anti-inflammatory. And you take that, put it into the food supply, and now you've got something that is just enhancing the daily lives of millions and millions of people because if you can say one thing about this country it's that it's aging mm-hmm. i know i'm aging my parents are aging and like i see people every day who would never even think of trying thc who are like well like that advil is burning a hole in my stomach i need something else that's not going to do that for me and will still help me relax and sleep and play with my grandkids or play with my kids or play golf and like that's where i think the biggest trend is with cbd at the end of the day um, all the be- what, how that will come to be, which formats, which uh, it, what amounts, I think that's all still very much an open question. I think that it's going to be fascinating to see what happens when CPG manufacturers with real food scientists, with real packaging expertise, um, with real care for substantiation and real marketing engines get into this space and start bringing their product development expertise to bear on it. Um, we're, I, I think we're just scratching the surface. Like this is, there's there's a great old, uh, it's a fiction book, but it's based in, it's a historical fiction that I really love, The Coffee Trader. Um, and it's about the rise of coffee houses and also stock trading, but in the 1600s. Um, and a lo- the rise of the coffee house was like this magical bean 
that was just ca- that had caffeine in it, and like all they knew about people how to believe get- that in the 1600s it was a magical bean. Yeah, I mean, magic take magic with a grain of salt, but they believed that it was like it, they didn't know what caffeine was, they knew what coffee was, and they knew that like this thing, this drink was able to make them work all day. It was able to amp them up, and and like they didn't really understand it, but like this was. You think back from there to like where caffeine is now, like how many different places it's put in, how it has been fit into our lives by marketers and manufacturers. I think CBD is the same. Like right now, it is very much tied to the plant. It is very much tied to tinctures and oils and like the very basic forms. It, it hasn't really yet come into forms that are designed to take the benefits of CBD and integrate them into consumers' daily lives in a way that is wholly acceptable to them. It doesn't require them to make trade-offs like, uh, yeah, I just like grit my teeth and drop, put that dropper on my tongue and like, I'm, I feel better afterwards. I, I think like it's, it hasn't hit that mark yet. Yeah. So in this crazy, uh, blossoming, exploding industry, what are your biggest challenges as CEO? You know, in an unregulated industry, the biggest thing that we deal with is how do you compete with people who say anything? Mm. Um, like we, we deal with this all the time. We, we have set up our company to talk specifically to people who care about things like QA and QC. Like we've got a whole lab run by somebody who spent 25 years at Siliker and Eurofins as a lab director. That, in, in my mind, that is essential. A lot of people, they just, they don't, either they don't care or they don't want to do the work. They just feel like they have to move too fast. Um, and they're getting pressure from above and they say like, Oh, but like this other guy tells me that he can do X, Y, and Z. So like, and you tell me that X, Y, and Z are impossible and are going to be slow, but like, I got to believe this guy because I got to hit my numbers. So like they move really fast and I don't know if it's fear of missing out or if it's just people forgetting themselves or if it's just a crush, but like it doesn't work out well. I mean, like you saw what happened with like Cureleaf and CVS, like that's something that could have been solved, like that could have been avoided with five minutes of Googling, like they could have avoided the whole PR problem. Um, I, I think like food companies that are going to get into the space and retailers, they really have to learn to do their diligence. And by do their diligence, I mean like you've got to go visit people. Like these are large food companies. If you call up the top five CBD companies in the country and say, hey, I'd like to send a team of my scientists and specialists out to look at you because we're considering suppliers. They will say, please come. And if they don't, you can safely scratch them off your list. Mm-hmm. Then you can send them out there. Look, if you're talking about a $20 million launch, invest a 50 grand in sending your team around to actually learn this stuff in the field themselves. See what's going on on the ground. I, I think like you can't get smart on this topic just from reading blogs or listening to podcasts. No nothing intended to either of us here but like you you have to see it for yourself to understand just what is going on on the ground because i think everybody hears the words and it's very easy to put up a marketing site it's very easy to say we're doing things but like until you actually go and see what they're doing and like watch them do the production that they claim they can do you're never gonna know um we had somebody in our office last week who's a food scientist very well-known food company uh private very all in-house production, very smart people, very careful. And he told us that he has been looking at CBD for the last five years. Like he has known this was going to be a thing for him. He has paid close attention. He has looked at every product out there and he has gone to see every person in the space. He's like, look, a lot of people have glitzy marketing materials and 
they look good. And then you go there and you're like, whoa, this is not what I was pitched. Mm. It's like, you, it was the best compliment we received so far. He's like, you guys actually are who you say you are. I think that's the thing. There are going to be more people in this industry who are what they say they are, but like, you can't find that out until you go see people. So Justin, you've talked about how, you know, your company really wants to focus on the QA, QC aspect of things, uh, do away with uh, variability problems and so on. We've talked about labs and testing and things like that. What about audits, third-party audits? Are you are you getting audited? Sure. I mean, we just had our GMP audit, but like, and a lot of people promote that fact. I think GMP is good. It's obviously not enough. Like, I'll, I'll start bragging when we've got our SQF level two, and like, we're working towards that. Um, and I think like the third-party private audit system, everybody knows the strengths and weaknesses of that. Um, so you just can't take that as a mark. I think there's a lot of like, there are a lot of industry groups. If you can't, shouldn't just take that as authoritative either. Like there's nothing stopping you from going and reading their documents for like, what does that certification actually mean? You should think about that and you should read it. This is, don't want to get distracted by the noise. So like, yeah, we care about all those things insofar as they are a reflection of what we have built from the substance standpoint, but they have to mean something like it has to mean something more than just marketing speak. I'm here with Justin Singer, CEO of Caliper Foods, a leading solutions provider for CBD for both consumers and manufacturers. So, uh, Justin, what's what's your long term vision for the company? You know, it goes back to the idea that cannabinoids are functional ingredients. I would like to see a day where we have solutions that are provide that we are making owning the CBD solutions infrastructure for food and beverage brands. So whatever their end component, we are producing the right product, sort of like the ingredient version of cannabinoids. What ingredient was to starches before they became the conglomerate, we could be to cannabinoids. And then we've got the consumer side on top with the with Caliper CBD, which is our consumer packet product. That's just a version of our ingredient powder that's degraded. And we'd like to see that stand for consistent, trustworthy CBD. Um, if we can get that, then maybe we can get a good synergy between the consumer side and the ingredient side, sort of run a Splenda model, which like everybody wants to run. I think it's a pretty obvious model, but I think it's built on execution. So like you really have to do the things that you say um, and you need to get that consumer trust and you need to get the trust from ingredients manufacturers. So I think if we can achieve those, if we can really bring the CBD infrastructure to the level where the food manufacturing structure is at, I think we'll be in a very good place, especially as this market grows um, and as it's poised to tremendously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So any general advice that we haven't covered that you might have for food manufacturers thinking about CBD as an ingredient? I mean, just I, do your diligence. Um, like just do it. I, this is the same advice that I gave to when I was an investor. Like I was always shocked by people making deals where they were just like, I like the cut of his jib. Like, let's give him a check for $5 million. Like, <laughs> no, you got to cut that. <laughs> like you gotta, you gotta get out and actually see this stuff for yourself. I, like I said, it's food. It's not rocket science. If people are selling you a black box, they're lying to you. Like you can understand this. That doesn't mean that like everyone's going to show you their formula sheets, but they can show you what's going into it. That's not a crazy thing to ask. They can show you what's coming out of it. They can actually test it in front of you. These are all things that food scientists know how to do. They do it internally every day. 
They've just got to have the confidence to believe that like this isn't as confusing as it sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like people are clouding the waters all the time, right back to the full spectrum, broad spectrum concept. Um, and people thinking that FDA has said things they haven't said. I think there's a lot of like regulatory tea leave reading that confuses everybody. Uh, there's a lot of legal advice that has failed to adjust its priors from pre farm bill um, there. And at the end of the day, there's just a lot of people scared. Um, they're scared of business interruption risk. They're scared of the federal government coming in and shutting down their existing business lines. When you work with CBD right now, you are taking regulatory risk. No doubt about it. If you want to get in with CBD, do what is the most char- easily characterized, the most easily controlled, and the one where you can really focus on the quality so you can focus on the brand. Like, go with an isolate or go with, if you're going to have to do broad spectrum, like, at least try and figure out how you can get the most consistent source possible. But, like, don't believe people when they tell you things. Believe them when they show you things. Yeah, trust, trust but verify. Yeah, verify, then trust. Uh, okay, <laughs> good, good. So, Justin, now what I'm hearing is there are synthetic versions of CBD coming onto the market. What the heck is is that about, and what should brand owners and consumers know about that? Should they be concerned, or do you think this is going to be a viable thing? I think it's a viable thing on a certain timeline. Um, I don't think it's a viable thing in the immediate future, both from a cost perspective, but also just... I, I don't know. I, I've been around biosynthetic a long time, like or pitches. I, I haven't seen one really reach the scale that everyone promises and the cost structure that everyone promises. And like, they're going up against the industrial agricultural machine. Like, I don't know if there's a larger engine of uh, mechanical operation in the world than the U.S. farming agri- farming system. Mm-hmm. Like, hemp, the price of CBD and hemp is going to go down once farmers really get involved. And like, biosynthetic, I'm not sure can match that. Um, I've certainly seen some people doing biosynthetics on the idea that they're water-soluble biosynthetics because they're mixing it with like a, a glycose or glucose molecule. I mean, that's super interesting as a science experiment. It's also not CBD. Maybe, like, a, maybe a niche application someday. Well, like if you if you take CBD and you merge it and you change its molecular structure, it's not CBD anymore. Mm. So like now you need to go through the regulatory process all over again, and like. Good luck with that. I mean, everything about the CBD market right now is being pushed by the idea that this is a non-outsourceable uh, cultivation, like farming market. We are we are trying to help hemp farmers here. We are not much more. That is the top priority of most of the lawmakers who are interested in this from a policy perspective. So, like biosynthetics, don't really help them. They hurt them. So that's a tough bet to make. I do think there's room for biosynthetics amongst the uh, the lesser cannabinoids. So. There's a lot of rare cannabinoids. We talked about like there's at least 100 right now. Not all cannabinoids are easily expressed by the hemp plant. Like some may, you may be able to cultivate and synthesize, or not synthesize the wrong word, but you may be able to crossbreed and get to a plant that produces CBC or whatever. Pick your cannabinoid. But then you got to figure out how to extract it and how to do that. Like we've been very lucky that CBD is pretty easy to isolate and precipitate out. Like that will crystallize out. If you take a look at THC, is just a comparator. THC doesn't crystallize. It's very difficult. Like you, you can't get a distillate that's above 85%, 85-90%. There's going to be other things in there. It's going to be molasses. So I when we look at the synthetic market, we see sort of a, a similarities to the stevia market. So you had like Rebe that came out of the stevia plant. It's like easily cultivated. And you have like more powerful 
uh, ones like RebM that generally come out of biosynthetics. I think it'll be similar with cannabinoids. We'll have like CBD to, that comes out of the plant because that's where it is most cost effective to produce it from. And then things like CBG or maybe won't be as easy to produce from the plant, but you can produce them very efficiently from a biosynthetic way. And like hopefully in time we will develop use cases and the right studies and the right uh, risk profiles to put that into the infrastructure as well. Yeah, yeah. Exciting time, exciting industry. I want to thank my guest today, Justin Singer, who is CEO of Caliper Foods. Justin, thanks so much for stopping by and talking to us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to C2C, where we cover innovation in the food and CPG business from conception to consumption. Just type the letters C-T-O-C, no spaces, to find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbeam, and Google Play. This podcast is produced for informational purposes and does not constitute any scientific, legal, or medical advice. The views and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are those of the guest alone and do not necessarily reflect the opinions and positions of the host or any other entity or organization. Listeners are encouraged to listen with an open mind and form opinions of their own.